Sir, the bathroom was just torn apart. Yeah. Did you do it? No. You didn't just smash up the bathroom? No. Well, who did? I don't know. Sir, your hand is bleeding. I cut myself. How? On my knife. What? What? Sir, your hand is bleeding. I know. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Yeah, but I didn't do anything. Sir, I've got no way to prove that you smashed up the bathroom. I didn't do that. I didn't. Look, I'm going to have to ask you to go. Okay. I didn't I'm do I'm going to have to ask you to leave. All right, please don't do this to me. Sir, I'm going to call the police. All right. Can I just stay? Sir, I'm going to crack your fucking head open. Get out of here. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this, my friends, is episode... Shuffle, 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 shuffle. 72. God, I'm terrible at that. Why do I... Every fucking episode, I'm like... And then I'm just like... And also, the best thing was I had the page like to the correct side. Then I flipped it, saw my number one. And I was like, that's not the that's right the side. That's the wrong side. And I flipped it back, and I was like, oh, 72. But it's episode 72. Confirmed. You should, you confirmed. should know that because on the episode thing, in the beginning of the, when you click on it, it says episode seventy two. Yeah. Why do you even say what episode it is? Because people like to know. But because a hundred years from now, when someone stumbles onto one of these, just like us, randomly, we'll both be alive. Well, of course we'll be alive, but we're not going to be... be uploaded into San Giapero. <laughs> yeah, we'll be you know Ray Kurzweil's dream, the singularity. We talked about that well, last two weeks it. ago. Um. Let's. Uh, we got a lot to do tonight. Um, so yeah, we're doing two episodes. We're gonna record because some somebody t- has a birthday coming. There's up. multiple birthdays. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think we have to talk about that. But um, oh no, my my end goal in this podcast is for both of our identities to be completely stolen. <laughs> Episode thirty three is going to have a lot of discussions on social security numbers and blood types. Yep. yep. I don't know what blood type I am. Do you know what blood type you are? A B negative. Oh, fuck me. God damn it. That was good. That was good. Yeah, it'd be negative. My blood type is... Universal receiver, motherfucker. That's nice. That's good for you. So yeah, you give me your blood. <laughs> that's, how this, that's how this podcast works now. Um, like Christian Bale in Harsh Times. Yeah. Oh, man. A Harsh Times reference. The movie was all right. That's a good movie. Yeah. It's because um, I turned... <laughs> Don't know me into a fountain of blood. My fucking one of the best lines ever in a film. Um, Mario, oh, you're not drinking. You're drinking a different beer. The beer we're gonna drink tonight day, officially is uh, Black Hog Brewing Company out of Oxford, Connecticut. Um, this is their Granola Brown Ale. Kind of their house beer, I'd say almost. Their 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 sea hag of of their beers. Their their uh, their headway. Their I don't know, man. Whatever the Island has going on. Thimble Island, come on. Well, they used to have that Nighthawks. Do we have a Nighthawks beer, which I really liked? Oh. But then, like, Holes started making beer. Oh, Holes just lager. But, but they're, they're, they're very typical brown. I actually really like this brown ale. I actually don't think it's typical at all. Well, no, they're typical brown in the sense of it is the, their, their beer. They're, like, their, their, their sta- flagship yeah. beer. Flagship is the word. Um, I think this I, beer is- I was going to say Staple House beer, and that's not a word. I love this beer. 
No, it's, it's good. I think this beer is um, really tasty. I really like it. I really don't like brown ales. Mm-hmm. So it's a sense of I really like it. I'm not ever really going to drink it because I don't like brown ales. But See, I do like a, brown ales. It's good. I like a brown ale. And I always sometimes drink Newcastle begrudgingly because there aren't a lot of brown ales around. So sometimes the only brown ale that's available is a Newcastle. Is Newcastle really a brown ale? Sure. It's kind of like a... It says right on the thing, brown ale. Yeah, but it's kind of like a brown ale that's been... Given some Lacroix or something like that. But that's what I'm saying. I'm, I like drinking a brown ale, and so when the, if this is available more often, he's doing it. No, I can't. I'll do it. <laughs> what does that taste like? Oh, that's a good. That's a good beer. Don't do that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Don't mix <laughs> Two Roads Road the Ruin <clears throat> Double IPA with a Black Hog. Granola Brown. You will not have a, a great experience. This is going to be a long night. For the record, it's not the Black Hog's fault, I don't think. No, it is not the Road the Ruins' fault either. It is the when person them, who, who decided that a great idea was to mix two wildly different styles yeah. of beer. But no, um, it's good. Um, there's not much to say about it. Drink it if you like brown ales. If you don't like brown ales and you get stuck with a brown ale, drink that one and not another brown ale. Tonight, you had a long day, but we also... I think need to drink a lot to talk about our first topic here, which is just kind of a recap of the Oscar ceremony. I think I've been drinking a lot to forget that it happened. Oh, exactly. The Oscars uh, happened. And I think it behooves us to talk about the topic of which we should talk about, which is the movie we saw Arctic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good. Very good. I'm shrugging right now because this is my thing. I think a lot of podcasts go really heavily into the Oscars. And a lot of people say this, but then they kind of like fall back into the standard of like, it doesn't matter what is or what isn't nominated. But maybe we just give a little too much credence to the Oscars. And they're fun. They're like the Super Bowl for me in that I don't give a fuck about football. Mm-hmm. And I don't... I mean, I do care about the opinion of the Academy now in the sense that it is nice when something I like wins. Yes. It's great. It, it's, it's, it's validating. Um... When something I love doesn't get nominated now, or something I love loses, or something I hate wins, I kind of make fun of it, as you saw in our shitty live tweeting. (laughs) Um, But I'm to the point now where it's like, "Eh, whatever. It's just the opinion of some several thousand people with the same, or whatever, values we have, and the opinions we have, and it's like, it's fine. It's it's nice when it wins, because when things we like win, because it validates that, um... And also, for a new filmmaker, it obviously opens up doors, unless yeah. you directed the artist. Um, in which case, you don't even get to make another like Brazilian, French agent, special agent. What was this movie called? OSO? I can't remember. It was, Nobody it was with, wants that. It was with Gene Lugard. Those um, movies are actually fun. They're better than the fucking artist. What was um, I going to say? But, you know, it's nice when some, you like wins, but I think now it's the point where, like, man, we could talk about being upset at this and this one. Bohemian Rhapsody, blah, 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 blah. It's like, let's move past it. Because the years will put those films to rest. And the years will let history, as I get older and closer to the inevitable decay of my body. Well, we're, we're, we're going to talk about that a little later tonight, in the sense that like there is a movie that, didn't win, that got nominated for a bunch of awards and didn't win any awards, but is an iconic movie at this point, with iconic performances and is kind of considered... One, one of the great movies in history. One little footnote to that. If you shit talk one film that was nominated that year for Best Picture, yeah. we're going to have a problem. If it's Hugh Grant starring, that's fine. If it's Ray Fiennes starring, we'll have a problem. 
Okay. With that, let's talk about Arctic. Yeah. The best ever. A movie Oscar. that Ray finds is not in. <laughs> the best ever Oscar discussion ever. Um, you saw this today. Do you want to do the rundown? Uh, yeah, I'll 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 kick it off. Uh, yeah, Arctic uh, is directed by Joe Pena. It debuted at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Uh, it just got released in February of this year. Um, it stars Mad Mickelson as Overguard, who is a um, employee of a I think the the, the things that airs polar cargo. Um, so he's just moving freight, I guess, over you know the Arctic. Uh, he crashes his plane and he tries to survive. Um, people come looking for him and they crash their helicopter and he tries to save the life of the one survivor of that um, by dragging her through the snow for an indeterminate amount of time towards um, like a rescue station or something. That's and, uh, and this is there's, the there's a polar bear. Directorial debut of 31 year old Joe Pena, who is. The mystery guitar man or something of that sort of YouTube. Mm-hmm. YouTube a YouTube guy who became a a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um You could read into that silence that I'm thinking. Yeah. People on the other end. I liked it a lot. But I'm not sure. I had Do you want, I, do you want me to do you want me to share my thoughts before you jump into your thoughts as you think as you yeah, because my thoughts are not really... I've, I've had a few... I've had a week or so to kind of, like, rest on this. I really, really enjoy this film for its subversion of the genre. In the sense that a lot of people... A lot of some of the, the early discussion... And you're not getting, like, a lot of, a lot of talk of this. Um, discusses uh, two things. One, the, the kind of cinematography of it and like kind of like exclaiming that, mm-hmm. um, really focusing on that. I, I'm not so moved by the cinematography. I think it's very typical of the genre. Um, especially, it reminds me very much of, um, and it's Workman. It's Workman and, and, and looks nice, but it reminds me of films like Alive or Joe Carnahan's The Grey. Um, and like The Grey especially is doing more with its cinematography to kind yeah. of like do a scope. This film, to me, is a subversion. Not necessarily, I want to say a subversion, but a different take on the genre in that most of these Arctic survival films, especially Arctic survival, um, are very heavily persuaded by their... are are lean heavily on the man versus nature sort of contemplation. Mm -hmm. And this film has those moments. It has the the attack of the polar bear, the attempt to um, carry the young woman up the, the slope... That isn't there on the, on the map. Yeah. But this film is much more a man versus self exploration. A, a, a man who, you know, Overgard really rests on the fact that he'll eventually be rescued. There's no, even after the woman crashes, uh, her, her, we can only assume spouse or significant other dies. I think that's what it's supposed yeah. to be, yeah. Um, She's bleeding. She's she's getting an affection. He's just waiting it out. Like he thinks eventually there there's no use in trying, and pushing. Uh, when when he gets to a point where he doesn't think he can get her further, and and it should be noted that this is one of the biggest depictions of like a good human being, like an absolutely completely moral human being throughout most of this film. Overgard is like excessively a decent person. He visits the grave of his co-pilot consistently. He he creates a grave for the the one helicopter pilot. Yeah, you know there there is is a sense of of obligation and a, a, of of care towards the young woman, a, a, 
even beyond the scope of, of his own survival. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is always rests mostly on the own concept of his own personal interior struggle. Um, that's your phone, Tom. Come on. We've been so, doing this I'm for sorry. half a I'm year. Sorry. You got to silence this shit. I'm sorry. Uh, and and it's it's marked by a few mo- oh, amateur hour. <laughs> it's marked by a few moments that that really struck me. And you know, Joe Pena for for being a, a new director um, in terms of features has really remarkable blocking in certain scenes. Uh, there's a part where he's he's putting the woman into his cot. Yeah. Where he rests and just kind of like holds her there. That's a great scene. Yeah. And, and just just needing the human touch. Yep. And, and needing and that's kind of it heavily weighs into the fact of what he feels is obligation or, or just the, the lingering on the scene where his kind of like leg is stuck and, and just the, that's a good scene too. You yeah. know, it is so much or, or just how long that scene is and how, you know, it almost feels overly long where he's trying to get her up that, that slight incline, you know, mm. that struggle he has. Um, well, I mean, it's just constant things of, of nature so much subverting him is there, but it is always comes back to the, the, the fight of self to do something. Mm-hmm. He, he rests in this routine consistently. He's doing the same thing over and over again, as demonstrated by the fact that his watch goes off every so often, and it shows you that he's doing the same thing. He's expecting a result. It's the definition, you could say, of insanity in the fact that he's not willing to take a risk. And a lot of, and last thing I'll say before you know, I kind of yield the floor uh, to Representative Meadows across from me, um, <laughs> <laughs> should take you should take offense to that one is is that a lot of criticism about this has been the ending uh-huh and and wikipedia even says at the end of the movie we heal a helicopter arriving from behind i assume they finally got rescued we don't hear of, it you see a yeah, fucking you see, helicopter you see it um and a lot of people are kind of uh, upset that it doesn't reach a conclusion that, that you don't know if they're dead or if if you know well, I, and that that to me isn't the point yeah to me the point is he got himself to the she had the resiliency to survive, you know, despite her massive energies to get to that point. He pushed himself no matter. He went against this kind of routine he had locked himself into against all his predilections to just kind of wait and hold it out uh-huh. and just getting to help, getting mm-hmm. to seeing a helicopter. They, you know, that is the, 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 the apex of the climax. They, they reach the resolution. Even if they die there, even if they don't get rescued per se, uh-huh. it doesn't matter. They 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 did their goal. They overcame the the self in order to to do something, and I, yeah. that's what I found really fascinating about this approach. I agree with you in terms of it being a subversion. I just want to address the ending real quick. Um, there's no way he's dead. No, no, I, no. Absolutely because not. I mean, yeah, I know he lays down and he closes his eyes and he kind of takes a and breath. And there's like a stop or breath, but but he's had. I mean, so she's had this gut injury for easily. If you count the lines on the bottle of like antiseptic that he uses, um, if you assume he's doing it once a day, like three weeks, yeah, may at the at the absolute most because it's it's hard to determine how many days they're kind of on the road um, because he he counts. He counts one. He counts to five days going around this other way after they've already been walking for a while. So it's kind of hard to tell. Um, and just towards the end of their journey, he notices that the wound is getting infected, and she's kind of you know her body is. She running starts out coughing up blood. It and... would be stupid for him to have 
like walked all this way to have eaten pretty consistently, to have drank pretty consistently, have one cut on his leg for like half a day and to die. I don't know, man. There's a lot of blood, but no, I think no sense. I think thematically, it's it's trying to make the assumption of you know maybe he did, but you know like obviously just with the fact that you don't see him breathing for a second. I mean, mean, most likely no, but so I really like. I mean, so to give Joe Penn a credit, um, I think I think he deserves a lot of credit because I think he made a lot of really smart choices here. So I think the watch is a really smart choice in the sense that um, it also shows it shows that kind of. you know, the inevitability thing that you were talking about, but it also shows an intelligence. You know what I mean? He's doing, he's, is it, he was put in a situation and he's um, figured out a way to manage it to the best of his ability. And the best way for him to manage something like this is to, you know, conserve energy, is to not leave himself too um, exposed, you know, to the elements for too long. You know, he goes up to the same place every day and does that radio transmission trying to get a, like a signal or something. I'm assuming he's got that fish thing set up where he can, um, where he can catch the fish and he can hear it. You know, he stores them. It seems like he, he, you know, parses it out like a fish a day or something like that. Um, you know, he's got his sleep routine to the point where he's got a box next to him where he rests his arm. Um, all that stuff is down pat, and I think that's really good because I think a lot of times you never get that desperate sense out of no, him. No, you got, almost think like he could survive for quite a while before like scurvy sets in. When you get that too, yes, and to that point when the helicopter crashes um, and he goes back and starts finding stuff, um, the helicopter crashing is almost like a victory because even though this guy is dead and he has to take care of this other woman. Um, he gets a bunch of new stuff. He gets sled. He gets that really awesome pickaxe. Um, he gets some ramen noodles and some granola. Which, man, and talk about the... Talk, if Joe Pena's film career doesn't work out, he can definitely make a career out of ramen commercials because that is the most delicious-looking awful oh, ramen ever. Um, but the so the scene for me that kind of defined... I don't want to say exactly what this movie's about, but what I interpreted this movie to kind of be suggesting is... When he turns on, the first time he turns on the propane, the you know the one burner propane stove, and the way they film it from down like you know from from below and it's a kind of overhead shot and you just kind of see his hands in front of it. Um, there's an almost like a holiness to it. You know what I mean? Like he's he. It's almost like uh, um, almost like a pillow shot. Yeah, we'll talk like, about that next episode. It's, it's not really like a pillow shot, but. Um, it's almost like a, it's almost like he's praying in front of something. You know what I mean? Like he's worshiping in front of this flame. Um, and to me, there's I think there's some vaguely religious undertones, like kind of going through this whole thing. Not specifically Christian, but more to do with respecting the idea that there's like someone above you, like looking out for you. So like when he falls in the hole, and like he gets his leg caught. Um, and he, he crawls his way out of the hole, and he goes back to the woman, and he just is telling her he's sorry. And what is he sorry for? He's sorry for leaving her. And the thing he says yeah. the whole time is, you are not alone, you are not alone, you are not alone. Um, it makes me think that he thinks that he fell in that hole because he left her. Like, there's like a karmic aspect to this stuff. Like, he didn't want to leave her. He was trying as hard as he fucking could not to leave her. She wasn't fully dead when he left her. He just knew that she was going to die and he needed to save himself. And he it almost seems like he made a selfish decision in that moment to not take her. And then he takes her 
you know, he falls in the hole, he rescues himself, he goes back out to her, you know, his leg is all cut up, he bandages it up and just kind of crawls up this hill um, to where the helicopter is. Um, I don't know, there's just something about the idea that, you know, you were not alone. Like, how are we not alone? Like, I guess they're together. But I feel like there's something, there's more than that at play here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, he did his duty. It's, it, I, part, part of me... So that's why I'm saying it's not like a Christian thing because I'm not thinking. I don't think he's doing it for God. It's just like a man. There's an it's obligation. It's like an obligation to your human. It's it's a it's a humanist. Other, it's ex- a very humanist yes, sort of exactly. perspective. Yes. Um, and in that, there's a there's a karmic perspective of how we treat each other. If we if we're not taking care of each other, we're all like we suffer. Like we're all suffering. You're, if we can't take care of each other, we're all gonna die. Um, there's something very spiritual in that. I think my criticism is. I wish it would have done more of it so I could be sure that that's what it's talking about. Because I, I think that was one of the – my one problem with the movie is that it, it – um, I'm not sure what it's doing besides what it's doing. Does that make sense? No, I – Does I it think... have to do something else? I don't know, but it's really – I just kept sitting there waiting for like – Something not like a major event, like a plot pit, like a plot twist or something like that, but for just something else to be happening. I think there's an interesting argument to be made there. It in that I think it's it's a. I mean, my experience is kind of like survival training uh, out west is is limited, but but we had it. We had a semester of it, especially winter mm-hmm. survival training. And for one thing, this film's really earnest with its depiction of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's exceedingly tight of a production mm. of a film. Yes, like Ryan Morrison's editing is outstanding. I think um, it's it, it's there's there's not a lot of fat in this. And you know me and my. It's my only an hour and thirty. It's an hour and thirty seven. Yeah, thirty seven. Yeah. I mean, I'm cheering the the church bells that you know the independent spirit went to. You were never really here for editing. Yeah. This past weekend. Um, and I would agree, but I think there's there's a reservation to kind of lean so heavily into those thematic concepts. Um, I think they're there, but I think there's a reservation to lean into it because I think it then takes away from the realistic depiction of what's happening. Mm. And yeah, this is yeah. a really kind of, it is a very realistic depiction of what you should do in survival. Like the fact that he actually builds out the snow cave in a very real sort of like snow cave, mm-hmm. a snow shelter, sure. was outstanding you don't really see that in films and i thought that was that was nice and felt, it feels like besides outside like the polar bear attack which kind of felt like on the nose and i wasn't the biggest fan of it i preferred um the the threat of the polar bear kind of the same thing yeah. especially I, I think the fact of when he like freaks out when overguard freaks out about the fish being taken mm-hmm. by the polar bear and knows the polar bear is out there yep um was great and i think the actual attack kind of leaned too heavily in, into the cinema you know, in, into what would need to be a tension, a tense moment. I think, I think the sound, I think it would have been better instead of the polar bear coming in if he had just heard it close by. I think so that too. would have been nice. Well, especially um, because when you showed the polar bear, it almost seemed like he was. It seemed like Overgard thought that the polar bear was going to like knock down the mountain. Yeah, man, those polar like bears. The way are he strong. was looking, it was just. I was like, yeah, he's. It's a polar bear. He's not going to push a mountain over. Like, relax. I mean, if it's a video game, and if he can't get his head. If he, all he can get in there is his head. It's like I think you're all right. Just pickaxe him. But no, even even so, like I I felt that was a little too, like on the nose for what needs to happen. Yeah. In this sort of film, uh, beyond that though, I think 
kind of the issues that they come into or, or, or the stress, like even his matter of fact, like, well, we got to go into the wind, <laughs> you know, was, was great. And it's realistic. And I th- applaud this film for its enamoration with, with being realistic, with, with kind of telling those themes, but not needing to tell those themes in such a, you know, narratively cinematic way. Well, so but I've, I think I want those themes present, uh, you know, I think those themes could have been present in helping to bring, as a um, way to, uh, as a Wikipedia an, article, as great. additional characterization for who Overgard is and what he, what he thinks. So it doesn't have to be like, you know, there doesn't have to be like specific spiritual allegory available to the viewer, but I feel like if there's more um, focus on who he is as a person, we might get some like more more of those thematic elements out of his care out of his character because mm. all we really know is that he seems to be a good guy and he seems to be really good at this. Um, is that enough to kind of propel this movie? I just, I wanted them to be safe because they're people, not specifically because I thought he was like an amazing character. See, I, I got, I see, I, I disagree there. I, I think Nicholson, like one thing, talk about that. It's just a great performance for having maybe 40 or 50 lines of dialogue and half those lines of dialogue being counting. Well, he's, um, just his, he has to be one of the most, charismatic like actors working yeah. today. Did you he, ever watch Hannibal? A, a, an episode here or there. I don't, one of my, I don't care. Like, but, but it's, it's yeah. That like I you know, it. point of point of reference. That's one my probably my favorite show of the past decade. Mm-hmm. That and True Detect like the first season of True Detective. So I watched season three. I heard it ended, I heard it turned out good. Um but see I got that from just from his actions and from like the fact like, like, just how much Pena kind of leans into that shot of trying to bring her up the, the mountain. Well, that's, and, and, and that, yeah. you know, like, there is those things. And so their survival is enough. And her just, you know, even though she has barely any lines, her, her willingness to mm-hmm. survive. And, and just that, that heart-wrenching scene where she's just like, hi, 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 after she comes back. Mm-hmm. You know, she knows what... She kind of you get the understanding. She knows what happened yeah, yeah. and that relief there. So you do want to see that. I think there's enough I, kind of like there, there's a teasing of these elements of 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 the push to want them to survive, right? With also having reservations and not being so on the nose and being like, "This is how you should feel," right? It's well, it's, it's resting a lot in kind of like a confidence in the audience. So I want to go back to real quick to the subversion point to kind of talk about that very idea the thing that i thought was subversive and the thing i was really happy didn't happen was that like this woman was in a helicopter crash she spends like an hour recuperating in his in his plane house and then like comes back so he can tell her like the whole tale or like she just like recovers enough to walk or something like that like he's just dragging her like the whole way. See, I was I was really worried that something's gonna happen after he had the leg injury that she was gonna have somehow have the random strength to carry Me him out. Me too. And I was like, no, no, but, and then it didn't happen. I was like, good. She was gonna say hello, and then he was gonna say hello. You're not alone. And then they were gonna cut to like him laying in the thing and like her making a fire. And it was like gonna be like, wait, what? <laughs> but the other thing, I mean, the other, so he is absolutely fantastic. Um, she's she's great too. She is great for what she's, she can do. For what what she does, yeah. Yeah. The other person I really want to give a shout out to here is the CGI polar bear. <laughs> the CGI polar bear. Um, 
the location scouting in this was really kind of amazing. Only from the sense that from that scene that we talked about when he's trying to drag her up the hill. Not only is... So he looks at the map and he's like, it's two days if we go over this hill. It's five days if we go around this hill. But Which is fine. I get that. But he's at the top of the hill and he looks out and it's just this kind of mountain range with like a clear path down the middle of it. Like it's the most tempting like survivalist yeah, exactly. like nature path ever. He's like... Oh my god, he could if like, I could just fucking get he her could up like here. Throw her over, grab the sled, and slide his way to the Right, yeah. Um, and that was just and to me that was re- that was a really kind of it was it was smart. I think this movie is really, really smart. And in the characterization that we do get, like we don't know instantaneously that those rocks he's talking to is a grave. But after he builds the grave for the uh, the other pilot of the helicopter that dies, we're like, oh he's been talking to this, you know, this guy and the great, you know, his whoever was with him like the whole time, you know what I mean? Like, see you tomorrow, like all that other stuff. Um, it's just kind of, it's fascinating. It's all, it's all this characterization that's done through these, you know, through the use of images and through the use of kind of, you know, materials and things like that. Um, but yeah, that location scouting, like finding those, those places um, to kind of, make you understand the desperation of like needing to get her up. Like yeah. we want because we can see what the other side looks like and it's so perfect, we just want him so desperately to get her up there because it would be so easy for him. And we just want things to be easy for him for like a minute. But he even but even when he comes down, he's like, okay, we'll find a better way. Like he's he's just he maintains this this like yeah, you know, righteous it's positivity all about the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Um but I thought it was good. I mean, I'm sure it'll be out on on demand probably tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it is. It's almost made back its budget, which is good. It was like it's, two it's million dollars. Yeah, it's two million dollars. It's made about one point six worldwide. Um, I mean, it's one of those things where I don't think it, it helps to see it on the big screen, I guess. But because the cinematography is not so extra special, it's which not... which is not to say um, it's bad. It's just no, no, it's no. very much if you've seen. A winter survival movie. You've seen how this movie looks. It's not anything you haven't seen before um, on the surface, but there are a lot of things going on underneath that make it worth a watch. Agreed. All right, so we will be right back with Mario's 72. Mario 72. March 27th, 1995. Was a was a fun day for me. Lived in Las Vegas, Nevada. Went to a marshmallow factory. Hmm. Went to the Ocean Spray factory afterwards. And then we went to go see a film. You know, my parents, obviously. Uh, my parents and I, if you grammar assholes. It was the film that was uh, co-written by Academy Award winner. Peter Fairley. <sighs> How did that feel in your mouth? That film was Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> the first film I'd ever seen, we were talking about Arctic earlier, that I'd ever seen in a theater where it was only me and my parents by myself, by ourselves. After that, I was really in a film mood because I had seen this movie alone. You mm-hmm. know? And it was, it was a theater to myself. And it, was, and it, it's a powerful film. I was seven years old. 
And so I was, no, eight, seven, no, I was seven. And I was drunk with film. <laughs> these are, these are awesome so words. I asked my parents if we could watch that night the 67th Academy Awards. Is this your first exposure to the Academy the very Awards? very first Academy Awards I'd ever seen. And why? Because I was very excited for one film I had seen that already. One film I'd really loved that was nominated for Best Picture that year and didn't end up doing much, and it's kind of been forgotten by annals of time, that I still stand behind as a really solid film. I look at you because I think you don't like it. That film being Quiz Show. I like Quiz Show. Okay, good. I really like Quiz Show. That night, Forrest Gump won. Who doesn't like Quiz Show? I've never met a person who doesn't like Quiz Show, but I'm really convinced somebody doesn't like Quiz Show. I watched the Academy Awards and I was kind of enthralled by it. Not so much by the pageantry of the awards, but by the fact that seven-year-old Mario didn't know what most of these films were. Mm -hmm. And when Quiz Show lost to Forrest Gump, a movie I'd heard about but hadn't yet seen, I wanted to watch all the other nominees. And so I did in the next about year and a half. Things took a lot longer to come out those days. Oh, no. I was also, I was also seven and eight years old, so you know. <laughs> Convincing my parents to watch my number 84 film, Pulp Fiction, took, took a bit of work. Um, my mom, soon, soon after released on VHS, watched Four Weddings and a Funeral, a movie that fucking sucks. Yeah, I don't But like all four other films nominated that year are pretty solid films. 1994 was a pretty good, was a good year, year for movies, film. Yeah. But after watching all those movies that had been nominated for Best Picture, I found myself struck by one in particular. Because I had also been a big fan of Stephen King. And I had had seven. Man, if my mom ever listens to this podcast, she's going to get arrested somehow. (laughs) Um, And had read different seasons. Uh Uh-huh. Mostly because I liked the body which mm-hmm. would end up being made in Stand By Me. Didn't like Stand By Me, but I liked the body. Mm-hmm. And this movie struck me because it was the first time I was ever exposed to something that elevated the source material. Mm. The film is obviously fucking Shawshank Redemption. Come on, people, catch up. <laughs> My number 72, The Shawshank Redemption. Send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me, God! And the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside they can't touch. What are talking about? Hope. Directed, written by Frank Darabont, the person who should almost only be allowed. Well, I guess now Andy has done a decent job, but 
Frank Darabont, the first of his trilogy of exceptional Stephen King adaptations. Meh. Oh, really? The Mist is fine. This is actually my least my least favorite in terms of liking, this one is? of liking them. Yeah, in terms of of and being enjoy, of enjoying them, Shawshank is my number three because there's no Marsha Gay Harden. Uh no, it's it's I I'm really I mean the mist doesn't show up on my list. Green Mile doesn't show up on my list because because they're not pivotal. Um, but I re- I'm I'm one of those dummies who's like fucking obsessed with the ending of the mist because mm-hmm. I think it's great. Especially the music, mm-hmm. the score, like that, that kind of like, was it Caleb, not Caleb Dish, you know, um, like that Joe Deb, that John, it's not John Debney, but it's a very John Debney inspired mm-hmm. sort of score. Wow, good job, Mario. Remember that shit off the top of my head. <laughs> um, you know, kind of, kind of very similar to Passion of the Christ and like that, that sound when the military comes in. It's like, oh, you fuck, you killed your kid. Yeah. Spoilers um, for the mist. But no, I'd read um, Rita Hayward and Shawshank Redemption. I, I was kind of bored. Has I think I'd read it when I was actually around eight by that time because I saw Shawshank I think when I was eight or nine, um, but did I knew that Shawshank was better than what King had wrote? Well, yeah, it's and it's better in the way that you know for the longest time is this still the number one IMDb film? It's, it was no. forever for a long time it was number one. Uh-huh. Um, it's one of those films that you know there, there's there's flaws around the edges. There it's, it's rough. It's it has some roughness to it. Um, it has kind of that 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 lingering. Uh, it's it's not it's not I don't think the best edited film. It's it's a little slightly overlong for me. Uh, maybe by about well, ten there's, minutes. There's two red speeches. Um, and even I mean, this is the this is probably the the pen the the ultimate start the uh, the genesis of the Morgan Freeman. Yeah, monologue. well, we're gonna I mean we're gonna talk about this movie more forty weeks from now. Um, thereabouts but there are, there is an extra red speech which says the same thing that he had said earlier in the movie roughly. yeah and there's 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 like that's my problem maybe there's a little too much of of telling you exactly how to feel uh in, in the narration um i don't think thomas newman's score is particularly memorable and i think it, it is overwhelms in, i think it is in parts film. um the cinematography in this is Roger Deakins cinematography, so you know you're getting exactly what you need to get. But mostly, this film is just carried by outstanding blocking from Darabont and just fantastic acting all around. This started my obsession with Bob Gunton. Mm. In that, anytime I see Bob Gunton now, I get really excited. This is my—I had a friend that called I, this a Clancy Brown movie. Well, Clancy. Oh, I mean, that, I mean, it was just like, oh, that that Clancy Brown there's, movie. There's there's other things that that made me absolutely adore Clancy Brown, um, particularly Carnival. Mm. So like now I kind of like lock, I see Clancy Brown on like Carnival, but I see Bob Gunton and it just comes right oh, back. Oh, he's just, he's Warden Norton. Just, just one of the, the best villains. Like I, I can even forgive the flaws of James Wan's dead silence because we get a lot of Bob Gunton in that movie. Um, and this movie, we're, we're um, this is going to be a short conversation just because there's going to be a much longer conversation in the year to come. But this movie set the stage for the, was the thing that made me for the longest time. I saw film has the subpar medium. Mm. I saw film has the media that would always be second to literature. When you were seven or eight or this eight, is eight, later. Eight, nine, eight, nine, ten. 
I mean, I kind of stroking my own dick here, but um, <laughs> no, I, I, I was I was raised I was raised very literally. My 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 mother always my mother my mom always no read, don't say my mother just say mother always baby. <laughs> my mom always like read Washington like Washington Irving to me as a kid and and Mark Twain. So so I was like that was my mm-hmm. bedtime stories when I was like five and six. So I I was raised in in a very kind of literary heavy family. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked film, but we kind of always saw film as kind of the dumb media. And, and this was the f- first time I had read something that wasn't nearly, no offense to Stephen King, one of my favorite modern authors, um, but had seen something that did everything better than the work. Uh, and luckily, you know, it happens around the same time as something else I had read a few years later and seen a few years later with Science of the Lambs because Thomas Harris's Science of the Lambs is fucking garbage. Me and my mom talked about that a lot. Well, it's a screen treatment. Yeah, it's also garbage. Yeah, but it's uh, because It doesn't matter if it's screen treatment. It's still just lingering dialogue that wanders off. Go fuck um, yourself, Thomas. I mean, mean, again, we'll talk about this. Actually, Red Dragon's fine. We'll talk about this 40 weeks from now. I mean, I had the same kind of experience with... um, the Shawshank Redemption. It was. It was. It was later. I think it was a, a few years later, maybe ninety seven ish when I saw it. Maybe ninety eight. Um, I was watching it on a bus, like a, on a school trip. We put it in the thing, in you know those in the, the VCR that showed like a move a screen like every however many. I have, I have a good. I have a good story of watching a movie on a bus, but not actually watching the movie. I will. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But I kind of had the same experience where I was just kind of like, movies can be this. Like, this is... Because, you know, I had my Patriot games, and I had my Uncle Buck, and I had all these other movies. What else did you have? And, oh, no, you didn't have that yet, did you? You, didn't have, you didn't have Accidental Taurus yet? No, I didn't have Accidental Taurus yet. Maybe it was coming soon, though, Mario. It was coming soon. Well, that's the thing. Accidental Taurus was after this. And I was just kind of like, the, like movies are can be... Like, this is what movies can be? Like, this is, this is unbelievable. And it wasn't until much later that I read the Stephen King story, and I was like... Well, this story stinks. I'd read the story but this first, actually. Movie so is amazing. How. I mean, and, and Darabont just pulls oh, huge I chunks how. of it out of it and makes a movie out of it. But the story is terrible. So before anybody gets excited and thinks I'm any sort of intelligent person, uh, I my mom couldn't remember where the raft, which, what short story collection the raft was from, and I was obsessed with the short story the raft mm-hmm. because I had seen Creepshow two. As a youth, um, as a youth, as the as youths. a child, um, and so I literally went through like seven or eight, and I can't remember now which one is off of. Um, you didn't feel connected to App Pupil at all, did you? I, I didn't read App Pupil. Oh yeah, App Pupil's long, and App Pupil's heavy. I came back to App Pupil later, but I didn't read. But I was really just looking for the raft, the raft. <laughs> and so I just kept reading <laughs> different um like what's Stephen, the raft what's the skeleton crew that's or? off a of skeleton that is off a of skeleton crew and i i so i read different seasons um four past midnight four past no what did i read four past midnight i can't remember i'm trying to remember what i read for different seasons the first one because my mom was like i think it's different seasons sure, i sure. read that and so i read a new like yeah so, anyways, I was just looking for the raft, and I stumbled upon this. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. like, "Oh, I'm gonna read some." Well, so I mean, let's go. I mean, let's go into it a little bit. Uh, you know, the differences between the book and the movie. Um, 
What are the? I mean, I don't know if you remember it at all. I just read it. Like I read it once a year, pretty much. Um, when I see the movie, and I watch the movie once or twice a year because I love it. Um, I always kind of want to hang out in the world for a little bit longer. I want to hang out in with these characters for longer. So I always end up reading, uh, taking different seasons out of the library and, and reading different seasons. Um, I mean, what is? It was. I know. <sighs> I read Night Shift. Different seasons, and then Skeleton Crew. Nice. That's what it was. Um, what do you think were like the glaring? In what glaring ways was the movie better for you than the book? I like because for for me the book seems heavily overexplained. Like every stupid thing that like someone could possibly question about like how this could be done. Like King makes a point of spending like a page and a half explaining like with the concrete. I think I think the issue with me, and this is coming off of a, I have not come back to you know read Hayward and Shawshank Redemption okay. Redemption um, since then. Is the thing I really remember is is the over explanations, but the over explanations of the thought of the characters, mm-hmm. um, the over like kind of like leading really heavily into how everyone's like feeling and how everyone's thinking, and not necessarily the motivations, but just just the mood of a scene. Mm-hmm. But they and sold that better in the movie. The film just does that by going, Tim Robbins, William Sadler, Morgan Freeman, just fucking be you. You can show that in your face in like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then we can move on with the plot. Mm-hmm. And, and so the things that really need those dramatic pauses and those dramatic stops um, you know, work better. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because the book is just kind of like um, like a bulldozer. I think I think actually my biggest problem with it, and I actually maybe had did reread it when I was in middle school. Now that I think about it, um, there, there's a lot of conver- There's there's an old saying that a lot of people you can tell when like I'm going to use a wrestling term here, a wrestling so, thing here. Sometimes you so Kevin it. Owens is is a pretty famous wrestler who's really good at at promos, okay. but he he's English as a second language. He's, he's a Canadian, so his his first language is French. Mm-hmm. Um, so he emphasizes the wrong word sometimes in a promo uh-huh. he'll be like you know i'm gonna beat your no i'm going to beat your ass sort of thing and like not beat or ass is not emphasized and my problem with, i think with some of the earlier king literature is there's an emphasis on certain emotions that don't necessarily work in service of the story hmm. and darabont realizes what works better has a dramatic arc Mm. Um, and so he emphasizes certain punches certain Mm -hmm. like tones much more soundly than fucking amateur hour over here now hitting your mic jesus much more soundly in terms of a narrative than than king did Mm. and i think that's what i what i kind what i kind of like didn't recognize i just knew that i wasn't bored when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I knew I was I was enthralled by this really fucking long movie. You know, I, I wasn't watching a lot of two and a half hour long movies as a kid. Well, yeah. Um, but I was I was really bored by by you know Rita Hayward and the Shawshank Redemption. But this kept me enthralled, and that's because he there was a, a sense of pacing and a sense of when to to drop that kind of like narrative hammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. It's an interesting juxtaposition, the movie against the, like, versus the short story. Um, because they're so alike in so many ways. And, and there are, they're like very ways, similar. That's like, they're that's, just like, you know. Which is, which is hard because it's, it's hard then to compare it 
to the mist are Green Mile because I think there's severe drastic differences in, in how the narrative unfolds. Um, maybe not so much the mist, but definitely Green Mile. They're, they're, they're told in, in very different ways. You know, the Green Mile kind of has a little, a little more expansiveness to it in terms of how it's written. Mm-hmm. It's what, five short novellas? Six. Five or six short novellas? Yeah. I started. I couldn't get into it, so I never actually finished it. Um, but what I read, there's there's vast differences. Whereas this is kind of a nice parallel, mm-hmm. and it was the kind of first time I was like, you know what, movies have value. Movies are do can do something emotively that maybe literature. I don't want to say literature can't do. I I, I don't think that's true. But literature sometimes fails. A, a piece of literature can sometimes be elevated by film mm. by another perspective by roger deacon's perspective <laughs> exactly <laughs> um yeah we're gonna talk about this movie a I lot happy- more i later. didn't need to watch it because i just watched it like five or six months ago but i was like nah, i'm gonna watch it because it's it's, it's just the it's best. always it's so just, satisfying yeah it's like a nice Glove or no? It's like a nice. It's like it's like that. Uh, was it the warm laundry? They always say. Yeah. Like getting a pair of pants on a cold day out of the laundry. <laughs> they're not your pants. Putting they're somebody, on, they're putting somebody on, else's pants. Putting on a pair of warm pants and, and that fighting person, off the sisters. It's, and that person mm. yells at you, and says, "Hey, stop wearing my pants!" And you're like, "They're my pants now." And they're just like, "Ah, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Those are your pants." And then your sisters just berate you, and you break out a window. <laughs> Speaking of which, we'll be right back with Tom's number 72. Um, We are back. My number 72, as Mario intimated with his outro for our his number 72, is Bilbo. Is Bilbo. I just, I couldn't shake it. I saw it that one time and I just couldn't get rid of it in my mind. Get those vaccines to those kids. (laughs) Wait, that's not Bilbo. Wait, no, what was I thinking of? So what's the vaccine? Start the actually explain your seventy two while I look <laughs> up what I was thinking of. And what were you thinking of? I think you of said a thing that exists that I hate, and I thought you were referencing that. Vaccines to children, dogs. Operation Dumbo Drop. Is that about vaccines? Nope. Movie. Just start. Just start. Just start explaining it. Don't <laughs> don't edit this out. My number seventy two is Operation Dumbo Drop. Balto. Oh, Balto. No, that. That's not Balto. Um, Sometimes jokes fail, yeah. guys. This was one of them. <laughs> Ultimately, that's what this podcast is about. Just. From episode 100 to 1, it's sometimes jokes fail. Don't forget that. Yeah. Um, in all, in reality, my number 72 is uh, Punch Drunk Love, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's 2002 film starring Adam Sandler and Emily Watson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and uh, just tremendous Luis Guzman. Um, running all over the place and not asking any questions. Um, it is uh, cinematography is by Robert Elswit, music by John Bryan. Um, there's these great color interludes by the digital artist Jeremy Blake, who did um, I think this in the cover of Beck's album Sea Changers, his two most mainstream famous works. Um, but he was a fairly prolific and famous um, digital artist uh, before he killed himself a number of years ago. Um, we're getting we're getting down there. 
Um, I don't know. I don't feel like this is a movie that you can really warrants kind of going into like the plot because the plot has all these weird nuances and things to it. So uh, Adam Sandler plays Barry Egan and um, I don't know if he has an anger management issue or what his problem is, but he sometimes kicks in um, sliding glass doors and windows and destroys bathrooms. Um, But he also sometimes um, buys hundreds of dollars worth of pudding. And he also sometimes uh, caresses sweetly a harmonium organ, um, and he also sometimes calls um, phone sex hotlines, and he also beats people up with a crowbar sometimes. I mean, these are just, it's one of those things where all of these things occur in a linear fashion, but because the characterization of Barry Egan is so non-linear and odd, it would be hard to describe the overall plot of the movie without having to kind of go into every single thing that Barry does. Um, Suffice it to say, he wears a blue suit, he has seven sisters, he owns his own business that um, sells novelty plungers. Um, This movie takes place in California, I think in the Valley, um, which is kind of where Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, Magnolia and and Boogie Nights and stuff all take place in, in the Valley. Um, it is vaguely impressionistic in what it's doing. There's a lot of bright colors, um, you know, not just the Jeremy Blake, um, you know, color montages that kind of break up a couple of scenes, but, um, in his use of, in Barry's suit, in Emily Watson's red dress, which they both wear through the whole movie, like a kind of, like a uniform, um, you know, there's a couple of scenes where they don't, but most of the time they're, that's what they're wearing. Um, but there's also a lot of, a lot of flares, a lot of sun flares in it. Um, there's a lot of darkness in it too, but that darkness ends up being a color as well. Like the blacks in this movie are really, are really, are really black. Um, the music is really bright. I mean, so there's a John Bryan score, but there's that really great scene when they go to Hawaii and you have that you need me song playing, um, through most of those scenes. Um, but I think this movie, so this movie is on my list for two reasons. Um, one, because I love it. Um, we you know we did that episode. that makes me smile. Um, this is an, a movie that also just, you know, just makes me smile intensely, but it's also on my list because it's, um, a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And it is, I'm not familiar with him. Who is he? The, tra- <laughs> um, it's the transitional Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It is the movie that occurs between Magnolia in 1999 and There Will Be Blood in 2007. And over the years, I have progressively found this movie to be more and more fascinating for what it projects about Paul Thomas Anderson, the filmmaker, what it seems to be shedding... Um, from the boogie, from the like the Sydney Boogie Nights, Magnolia period, and what it seems to be walking into. In the there will be blood, the master inherent vice, phantom thread, you know whatever comes next period, um, and I think those things, I mean I know he said, on you know on Mark, on WTF 
Mark Maron's podcast that um, he just wanted to work with Adam Sandler. Like he really liked one of this thing that Adam Sandler does in every movie where he seemed like he freaked, you know, he was, you know, he freaked out, but it wasn't funny. It seemed kind of scary and dark and had this darkness in it, and he really wanted to kind of project that into the movie. But he also says that it's a it's primarily a love story, which I guess it which I guess it is. Um but I also see it in kind of the same way that and I just came up with this when we were wa- when I was mo- watching it most recently, um which would be last week. Um Kind of like how we were talking about um, the house that Jack built as kind of Lars von Trier's like self-referendum on his career, and how like some of the stuff that was coming out of Jack's mouth, you could almost see coming out of Lars von Trier's mouth about about himself. And there's you know this is a, a script by Paul Thomas Anderson, and you can kind of see a little bit here um, in some of the way the camera moves, but also in some of the illusions in the script. And uh, this is only, perhaps only relevant after, like way after the fact of like him trying to figure out what the next step was. And it's not a heavy trying to figure out what the next step was. It's a very, <clears throat> and he said on the WTF podcast, he's like, you know, when they talk about making this movie, he's like, we, the, you know, me and the crew were all really good at this now. And we just kind of wanted to be, we just kind of wanted to make something. But it's interesting that when they feel like they got really good at making movies, the movie doesn't look anything like the two previous movies that they made. You know what I mean? Like, it's a different, it's a different movie. He's working with a different style. And it's a style that suggests what's to come in There Will Be Blood. So, like, when he, in Boogie Nights and in Magnolia, he was doing all those very Scorsese-esque, like, push-ins and all those kind of like jump cuts and just like everyone's pushing in on cameras and you have all this pop music in behind you and it's really like frenetic all the time. There's this, these really sweeping camera movements in this now. There's a lot of like you get all those those flares and you get a lot of bright colors and you get a lot of um, shots that are almost kind of blown out and, ca- and like filled with shadows. Um, you get a lot of Steadicam stuff. Um, following Emily Watson around and it's just none of this stuff existed in the other three movies and it just it I, I just find it so it's it's <clears throat> if, I mean if I was gonna write and, and it also starts the um, Paul Thomas Anderson movie thing of like the lone male in like at the center of the movie you know what I mean because you have Barry Egan in this you have Daniel Plainview you have um uh, Joaquin Phoenix in The Master, you have Joaquin Phoenix in Inherent Vice, and you have, um, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis again in, in The Phantom Thread. It's just one guy. It's one guy trying to process how the world around him functions when he his own being seems anachronistic to that way. And if that isn't, like... A description of like maybe what a filmmaker feels like making his fourth movie and kind of trying to figure out like what's next like you know I don't know that seems like a perfect description for that you know what I mean yeah who had kind of pigeonholed himself as the guy that did this and then he was like nope now I'm gonna do this the thing I've always actually not always I've wondered this recently is there is, from an academic standpoint, two classes of Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> there is the editor in Dylan Titchener, Paul Thomas Anderson, 
who would edit, you know, Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. Bagdolia, um, There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread. There's the Leslie Jones, Paul Thomas Anderson, mm-hmm. who would edit The Master, um, Inherent Vice, and Punch Drunk Love. Hmm. After she had co-edited, uh, I think they had met after he was going to do, um, at least off of Cigarettes and Red Vines, article, like interview with Leslie Jones. He had was doing a talk on the Thin Red Line, which Leslie Jones had been um, a co-editor on. Mm-hmm. And so I class these two films, the, these these two classes of editors, you know, in, in two different there's there's a purpose and an inherent sort of drive mm-hmm. behind why Paul Thomas Harrison does this. You, you know, you look at the definition of the auteur, and Paul Thomas Harrison fits that because there is a obsessive need to control the film. You know, um, Leslie Jones said in, in that in, in an interview that like Paul's fiercely loyal to his own instincts. If there is something he loves and it's not acceptable to other people, that's okay to him. Right? You no, know, he has control of his sure. vision, so he. You know, even though he works with Elswit throughout this entire filmography, going into Phantom Thread, you know, even though there's consistent channels of people he's coming back to, these two separate bodies of editors has always given me pause because mm. I cannot, for the life of me, maybe maybe someone with Punch Struck Love and Inherent Vice, but the master kind of throws the wrench in there. I can't understand the decision he made to sometimes go with Leslie Jones. Yeah. And sometimes go with Dylan Tishner. Well, so I would argue that Leslie Jones probably makes the more impressionistic films of Paul Thomas Anderson, Cause, which is true, probably obviously true of something like Punch Drag Love and Inherent Vice. But The Master, if you look at it, is not... The Master kind of strikes like me like literally narrative, but it's also... It, more of a Phantom Thread sort of element. Like, Phantom Thread throws the, the hook in there. Because Phantom Thread is... She did... Leslie Jones did Phantom Thread too, or... Tishner did Phantom Tishner did Phantom Okay, so Leslie Jones does his impressionistic films where she's just kind of... There's definitely, there's definitely creating... a slight of a hands-off. Like, there's, there's definitely a collab... Like, there seems to be more of, like, a collaborative effect with Leslie Jones than there does with... There seems to be more of a... You know, Dylan Tishner, you know, had worked on well, things so, like Royal Tannenbaums and Brokeback Mountain so as look, editors, let's look so. at that. I mean, if you look at those two... Fi- if you look at those two groups of films, let's even just pick something like... Pick something like, well, I guess we'll take Punch Truck Love and we'll take something like There Will Be Blood and The Phantom Thread. And You know what I mean? In the sense that in Phantom Thread and more so, I think, in There Will Be Blood, he's putting a camera in a place and he's shooting it. So I always go back to the scene where um, Daniel Plainview's son comes back to him after spending a bunch of time at that school and they're in that field. Um... And the the camera never cuts. They just bring him the you know his son, and he you know hugs him and, and what have you. But the camera never moves. The camera's just there. It's just sitting there, um, which suggests a more linear structure. Where I don't think there was a lot of different versions of that scene. Where in something like The Master, you're just you have Joaquin Phoenix probably just tearing like scenery apart in every frame he's in. And what are you gonna do with it? Like how do you construct? a film out of whatever well, takes are available to you. And what she says furthermore in that, that interview, what I find interesting, maybe so much in, in Punch Truck Love and, and Here in Vice and the Master, is there's more liter- lyricism. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. she says like it feels lyrical. And so it's more of like, we've talked about this with a musicality. 
But then once again, Phantom Thread has such a, a solid musicality to it. And in the same token, you know, like Leslie Jones's backgrounds in films like Murder at 1600, that Leslie's, that Leslie Snipes action film, whereas Paul Titchener guy's background in like Robert Altman mm. films, like as an apprentice and as an associate editor. And I don't know, I'm, I don't mean to derail the conversation. No, it's this is the conversation. It's really confusing to me just because... Paul Thomas Harris is just like this weird amalgamation of a human being that I don't get yet. Well, and, he, and like you yeah. think that Tishner sort of like style would be more leaning. I, mean, I guess I guess Altman would be more natural naturalistic. So much. But Altman's also is shooting a ton of shit, and so he's like, there's a lot of piecing together. Like, it just stick a camera somewhere and let it and let rip. Um, but there's a lot of sound mixing and sound editing that's going to go into it. And I guess, I guess things like the master has a bunch of shit that gets cut out. Like there's a ton of shit from the master, um, that gets, that gets cut and then thrown in the teaser that doesn't end up in the movie, like mm. in the trailers, um, because they work for the trailer, but don't work for the film. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe, maybe you're making, maybe the point is there. But just think about, so there's something like Punch Drunk Love. So actually the master and Punch Drunk Love, which are both Leslie Jones movies, like you said, um, are interesting comparisons with each other, um, in the sense that they both have scenes of the main character, and I don't think that the main character is specifically like in the distinction of it being the main character is not specifically important. They both have scenes of somebody like just losing his shit. Um, you know, you have you know Barry in the bathroom um, at the restaurant when Emily Watson asks him about the fact that he threw a hammer through a window, um, which is kind of a running joke through the thing. Like, did you throw a hammer through a window? I didn't. My sister's a liar. Blah blah. blah. Um, and then in the master, you have you know any number of scenes where you know Freddie is just going crazy. And even in Inherent Vice, you just have a, a constant kind of acid dream of a film. Sure, but even so, even something like the Catherine, the, you know, the very famous Catherine Waterston scene in, in Inherent Vice, like what was what was scripted there, and what was just kind of like going through the scene again and again and trying stuff out and then it's up to the editor to kind of just like piece these this very interpretive you know um film production into a linear like uh, into into a film you know what i mean this is why it would be almost it would be great if we get both of them ever on the podcast if we ever got more than a thousand listeners just because it feels to me that there is, I don't want to say a synergy, um, but there is a a parallelism, a, a kind of joint understanding with the Leslie Joan features, where where you kind of get a kind of stream of consciousness almost in, yeah. in the, in the oh, filmmaking. Yeah. Whereas you know, Titchener, it's it's more like there is a make up film being made that needs to be pieced together. You mm-hmm. know, like there is really large like. <laughs> Excluding Phantom Thread, which maybe Phantom Thread became more of a, a kind of, you know, we'll talk about Phantom Thread later, became more of like a personal project where Paul Thomas Anderson was like 100% on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Magnolia and, and Boogie Nights and especially There Will Be Blood feel more like films that are driven by the need for outside eyes. Well, so you I know, think so the, there's less of a collaboration and yeah. more a need for someone to be like, no. And I also think that, but those are very probably script heavy movies where mm. I think that something like punch drunk love is while there was obviously, you know, a script and I'm sure they followed the script and stuff like that. There was also a sense, or even especially like inherent vice, you know? Sure. Oh yeah. 
Um, well, in something like Inherit Vice, you almost have to because it's pure. You have to be stream of consciousness, right? From that. But you all, yeah, you're going to be. You can't. You have to have a script because you have to know what you're going to do on any given day because it's pure. You have to make sure you have all the shit. But inherently, with something like Inherent Vice, inherently, um, and all, um, but also something like Punch Drunk Love, you're just seeing, you're just seeing what works that day. Like, there, there's what, a like need, how does this? There's like, a need to be raw. Yeah, and that's well, and that's so that's. It's interesting that Punch Drunk Love comes where it does because it comes after Boogie Nights, which would you know people would say is a raw movie, and something with Magnolia, which has these open but fucking it... emotional. That's what. But this is what I'm saying. Oh, I'm, yeah. We're going to the Sorry. same place. Um, you know, Magnolia has open emotional wounds in it, and you can interpret that as something like raw. But in reality, something like Punch Drunk Love is a version of raw filmmaking. You know what I mean? Where like. They're just moving the camera. They're putting a camera in front of um, Adam Sandler, and they're just like, just do what you like. Your character is gonna dance here in the grocery store. Like, what does that look like? It's more you know of a cinema I mean? verite. Let's sort see of. what that Not like. Necessarily cinema verite, but the best way of describing it. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna push in, and Luis Guzman, like you're gonna react to whatever you see, which is gonna be just kind of bonkers. Um, and I'm gonna push in on him, and you just do what you gotta do. You know what I mean? And that's where even like something like the ending of that movie, where he confronts Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, in a very small role, is unbelievable in in this part, where he confronts him. The emotions there are not just kind of raw, like in a play. They're raw, like they're real. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman almost seems like he has no idea. You know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character almost seems like he has no idea what Barry's gonna do to him. And that's why he says, like, that's that. Because this could literally go in any direction you want it to go in. And there's a lot of things in that movie that I think kind of play to that point. Where a scene that I find really endlessly fascinating is when the brothers are chasing Barry, like, the first time. You know what I mean? They get him to withdraw a bunch of money from the thing. And then he says, like, well, I don't think I should have to do it. Because in that other brother that we hadn't seen before, you know, chase him. And then they chase him in the car. And he jumps... You know, he's running around and he's making that weird sound like that. Ah, 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 it's weird. And then he's running down the alley and then all of a sudden he jumps and kind of does a flip. And then he's just kind of down on the street. You know what I mean? And like the perspective is wrong for it to be like he jumped off of a wall, over a wall or something and onto the street. Like the perspective is wrong. It's like a, it's like a weird jump edit. But it's probably plays to that kind of when you said like a raw cinema thing, like they're just working with they're they're not trying to create a movie that has like no continuity problems. You know what I mean? They're trying yeah. to create a like a, a dreamlike scenario or a nightmare in this case a nightmare scenario and that can look however you want it to which look. Which is really which is really apparent when you surround, you know, somebody who at that point could be seen not necessarily as unhinged, but somebody who could be seen as more unrefined as Am Sandler and like even like a Robert Smeagol with people who are just workmen, you know, mm-hmm. Emily Watson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Mary Lynn uh, Raj, I can never say her name, Chloe from 24. Raj Scub, yeah. Yeah. Um, and even like Luis Guzman, people who, who fucking get the work done, they're, they're not necessarily, I guess at that point, they're character actors mostly. So they, yeah. they, they support, you know, so when you're supporting someone who's kind of this wild card, they're they're in there for a purpose, you know. It was it was allowed to be, or intended to be, kind of a very raw kind of true performance there from Sandler, and 
It works. Oh, works. I mean, so that's I was like that's the place I wanted to go next. Like, so you think it works? I think it works really well. I think he's actually really, really good. No, this movie, this movie pisses me off because it shows that Adam Sandler. This and um, a movie that's you know gets meh reviews, but I, I really like Mike Bender's Rain Over Me. Show that. And I guess even Meyerowitz stories, even though I'm not the biggest fan of that one. Um, you don't want to throw the funny people in there? Everyone always likes to say funny people. Uh, no, I don't. Because, because it's it doesn't... I don't think that... Um, I just don't think that Judd Apatow's as good of a filmmaker. Judd Apatow puts, like, Punch Truck Love, I read somewhere, like, has one of his, like, favorite movies. Right. Um, but he's just not good enough. I mean, he's a good, he's a good, he's a, he's a work serviceable filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he makes a lot of movies. Knocked Up is good. I like, you know, 40 Year Old Virgin. But he doesn't have a certain sort of secondary depth necessary to really bring it home. Even when he thinks he has a secondary depth, he doesn't have a secondary yeah. depth. Um, but, you know, like Rain Over Me for me and, and Meyerowitz Stories, which even though I don't like, I, I see what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, those movies show that Sandler can do work, but I mean, credit to Sandler, he doesn't fucking want to. So, but it's frustrating that you could see somebody who has a lot of like not even potential, somebody who has a lot of talent, well, and, and somebody who are, needs the, who can expose that just as like. Nah, I just don't think people are putting him in stuff. You know what I mean? Like they're just well, not taking we'll see, the opportunity. We'll see this year. What is he in this? Safety Brothers movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's an it's a movie that I keep. I mean, uh, we're going to talk about. Pro- I mean, I, I'm going to. One thing I'll say, I think he's a better actor than Hot Take. It's Jim Carrey. Hmm. There's a... I think a, they're similar there's, in the sense that I think their material dictates how good they're going to be. Uh, no, I agree. But I feel that Sandler is better at portraying an actual human being in unnatural circumstances, whereas there's always a level of theatricality. Mm-hmm to Carrie's performance mm. that makes it so you're watching a role. Whereas something like Barry and punch truck love or, you know, rain over me may not the greatest example. There's still a little theatricality to that. Um, or I think Meyerowitz stories. Um, there is a certain naturalism to it, a certain level of, of earnestness that, that could be taken as, you know, you could see that person existing in a, in some sort of, in that universe, you could see that person existing. Whereas yeah. Carrie has always kind of been somebody who, even in the world that's created for him, is kind of a explication or a not explication, a um, a caricature of that of that world. Yeah, a we're gonna talk about that. that. You know what? And that's we're gonna talk about a couple of Jim Carrey movies later on my list, and that's um, Batman Forever. Batman Forever, yeah, like seven times. Twenty three, number twenty three. Gonna be on there, Mr. Brooks. He's not even in that movie, but we're just the cable guy. Ooh, we're yeah. just gonna bring up we're mis- bring Jim Brooks. Jim Carrey when we're talking about how great Dane Cook the is. The Bad in... Batch. What was that? Is that new movie? Uh, last year? Two years? Is ago? The Jim Carrey movie. He's just in it. Oh, he's just like a he's like a guy in it. Um. Yeah, I think I, I think that's right to a point in the sense that. Um, even at um, his most theatrical in Punch Drunk Love, it is a piece of the character that he's creating when he's not being like theatrical, when he's just being kind of angry and confused and unsure of himself. Um, 
So you can, you know, when he's freaking out on the phone about the pudding, which I always find kind of like the most, um, you know, when they won't redeem his frequent flyer miles fast enough, I, I always find that the most kind of like scripted, problematic part. Um, but when you see him at the restaurant, not when he's breaking the bathroom, but like right before he's breaking the bathroom, when he's kind of like about to lose it and he's kind of trying to keep it together, or when you see him on the phone talking to his sister when he's in Hawaii trying to get Lena's number or even um, when he confronts Philip Seymour Hoffman's character at the end. Um, these are all very humanistic moments and the, but they also justify the kind of freak out moments um, which I think could be played for laughs but are you know maybe they maybe they're funny i don't find them particularly funny i don't find them sad or like disheartening or dark or anything like that they're just kind of they're just what this guy's character is um he is a guy that could very easily buy a bunch of pudding at a grocery store and kick out a bunch of windows and be kind of okay with it he just understands that's who he is yeah i'm just <laughs> this is just me i'm that kind of guy um i don't know we're going to talk about pretty much every paul thomas anderson movie except for one, two, through the course of this podcast. We don't talk about Hard Eight. And we don't talk about Inherent Vice. We'll have to do a bonus episode. Yeah. Towards the end. I actually have still have only watched brief. I have only watched on TV and forgotten Hard Eight. Yeah, it's just very, it's just. Inherent Vice will be a more interesting conversation, especially now that like the common consensus is that it's also great. Kind it is great. Critical world. I think you it's great. Did not like inherent vice but nearly I as but much as I like. I don't like it up. because I'm a. Because, I love and I don't want to say I'm a, I don't want to say I'm a pigeon guy because it makes me sound like a dick. But I'm a pigeon guy. So when I was like, they're gonna Paul Thomas Anderson is adapting a pigeon novel, and they also sound like a dick. I'm not a pigeon guy. I lost my I lost my shit, and it just wasn't what I wanted that book, the version of that book to be. Mm. Um, and that's a number of people's fault, not Paul Thomas Anderson's, probably Benicio more. Benicio Del Toro? No, it's probably more Joaquin Phoenix's fault. I mean, because originally Robert Downey Jr. was attached to play right. Doc Sportello, yeah. and I was just like, that is fucking amazing. And then we got Joaquin Phoenix in a pretty, in, in a fairly good performance. But it's just not like, that book is so funny, and the movie is not funny. Except when it's trying to say, look how funny we're being. Um, I don't know. We'll talk about that more, probably. In some sort, we'll of kick episode. the can down the road on the inherent vice yeah. conversation. So, um, that's I got nothing else. You got anything else? Uh, well, I mean, I do, but it's going to be the next episode that we're going to record immediately after this. So, bum, bum, bum. Um, but if you have something to say to us, as to our shitty live tweeting or elsewhere, um, like I said, I'm gonna we're going to be tweeting more. I just there's needs to be more interesting information every day for me to tweet about. I guess I because March about the Kaganada thing. That's good. Yeah, I'll tweet about, about that, that in a minute. Um, let's see what exactly where we record this now that I said that. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Mm-hmm. Or you can go to, uh, you can, if you need to, uh, more than 140 characters to tell us anything, you can uh, email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and you can see a list of the movies we talked about, a list of the beers we've drunketh, a list of uh, or the places that you could subscribe 
um, links to the shows, essays and lists and things. And there's also a contact box that you can uh, send us a message there. Um, yeah, we're going to take... Um, I don't know, there's a bunch of movies coming out at the end of the month. I mean, Captain Marvel comes out uh, in a couple weeks, um, which will be exciting. Maybe a week? next week, I think. Maybe yeah. Next week, yeah. Um, I'm excited to see it. I actually don't... I'm kind of out of the opinion that... Tweet sent. Captain Marvel doesn't matter until uh, Endgame comes out, until Avengers Endgame comes out. Um, so maybe According we'll... to a bunch of YouTubers, <laughs> Captain Marvel is the most awful thing ever made. Well, which is runs contrary to a lot of the earlier reviews that said it's really great. Well, no, I'm I'm talking about just idiots who oh, okay. hate Brie Larson. Oh, well, but I, I, Captain Marvel plays so heavily into the end of the Avengers whatever um, that it's almost not worth thinking about, even after you've seen it, until after you've seen Endgame and see how they mash these two. Uh, franchise I guess, I guess together. we could compare the aging technology yeah, at the end of the year. That'll be good. Between it and, and the Irishman. Um, but yeah, over the next couple weeks, go see a movie and drink a beer and we'll talk to you next week.